Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, it's just so wonderful to see you all here this morning. It's, it's quite a sight, isn't it, after we've been so spread out and so few of us able to be here. But it's just so wonderful to be together this morning, isn't it, to be back. One fellowship, one in him, and uh, all here together. So it's great to see you this morning. Um, well, it's come to my turn to um, share my story. Um, and when thinking about my story, it's been quite hard to know where to start. Um, so rather unconventionally, I'm going to start at the end. <laughs> and I'm going to try and put into words uh, the most recent and the far toughest chapter um, the past 18 months. Um, I'm really glad that Hannah paved the way for the need of tissues last week. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah. Um, but you know, when we read a book, there's always a title for the chapter. And if I had to have a title for my chapter in the last 18 months, it would be Who Turns Our Chaos Back Into Order? Um, so my story starts last January um, when a phone call, a Tuesday evening phone call, turned our world upside down. Um, it was a neurologist telling me I had a diagnosis of motor neuron disease. Um, for those of you who may not know, it's a rare condition um, that affects the brain and the nerves. Um, and it's these nerves that tell the muscles what to do. Um, the stats tell us that one in three die within the first year and over half die within two years. Um, I felt completely numb. Uh, a few days after the phone call, uh, a team coordinator for MND came to the house. Um, and there she gave me my appointment to see the neurologist and explained that there would be a team there when I went to the appointment. Um, she said there would be a speech and language therapist um, to discuss swallowing and speech difficulties, a neurophysio to discuss ways to maintain movement in the limbs, a respiratory consultant for breathing issues, an occupational therapist for adaptations needed for the home, and St. David's nurses. I think we all know what they were there for. Um, as I'm sure you can imagine, I was totally overwhelmed. Um, I felt like I was living through a nightmare, as if it was some kind of outer body experience and I was the one looking, looking in. Um, especially because I've never really been ill. Um, I was the one who looks after everybody else, um, from Nigel when he was ill, and then caring for my parents, and then the boys with all their sporting injuries. My role was carer, but never patient. Um, a friend used this analogy that very helpfully explained how I was feeling. Um, she said, if your life is a jigsaw puzzle, at the moment it feels like all the pieces have been thrown into the air. And that's exactly how I did feel. Um, I went from feeling numb to being filled with fear, panic, and anxiety. 
Then there was guilt. Uh, three days earlier, our older of our two sons, um, Samuel, who was living in London, had just announced his engagement. Uh, we hadn't had time to see them or to celebrate, and I felt so guilty and sad to be ruining their happy announcement. I also wondered if I'd see the wedding day. Um, following the appointment with the neurologist, it's hard to put into words what I felt, um, but looking back, there were three main areas of, of fear, of fear for me. The first one was the boys, um, how we could ever face telling them, and the repercussions for them and their futures, a future we'd all taken for granted. And then there was what could happen to me physically. All I could see was Stephen Hawkins. He's the one we tend to think about when we think about MND, isn't he? Um, and this gradual paralysis. And, but then also for me, it was what about serving the Lord? You know, Hannah and Gareth had not long been voted in. And I was excited about the vision and all God was going to do. And I wanted to serve more than anything. I wanted to be part of it all. And what good could I be possibly with this? And I felt surely there was so much more I could do if I was healthy. Um, for a period, I couldn't concentrate on anything, um, not even to read or pray. And I was worried that I'd never be able to do that again. Um, but before anything, I knew we had to face what for me was the worst day of all, and that was Nigel and I driving up to London to tell the boys and Beatrix. Um, I won't explain any details of that day because I couldn't, but all I can say is that God was so present in the, even in the heartbreak. It wasn't long before both the boys had separately made their way home and the way they loved and helped us, putting aside their own devastation, just blew us away. Um, gave me another reason for being upset. <laughs> when I realized that my babies were now men, and not just men, but mature men of God, and I do thank God for that. As they returned to London and we'd had that time to talk, it felt as though the first piece of the jigsaw, maybe a corner piece, had fallen back down and landed. I was still far from clear-headed, and I started to question everything I'd ever believed. I thought about all the thousands of sermons I've heard in my life that I've nodded to and said amen, and even written copious notes. All the words of the hymns and the choruses that I'd sang, and all I'd read in my Bible over the years. But it felt like I'd been through some huge shaking and had just been dumped at a crossroads. And looking ahead, there were only two options for me. Either my faith was going to mean absolutely everything, or it was going to mean nothing. And it felt like there was nothing in between. C.S. Lewis said this, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life or death to you. It might sound drastic, but that is literally how I felt. 
but I'd like to share some of the things that in hindsight helped me to move out of that position of chaos. First, I looked back. I found myself looking back over my life. Um, my mind went to my childhood um, when I was still in primary school, often remembered lying in bed thinking about my parents' life. Um, I'd hear them getting up ridiculously early at the crack of dawn. Um, they didn't need the tooting of the miner's horn to wake them. I'd hear my mother singing and the washing line would be full by 5am. From my bed, I'd hear my mother with a sweeping brush as she washed and bleached the path outside my bedroom. <laughs> I never quite understood it. <laughs> uh, thankfully, the deal was no hoovering until I was up. <laughs> they regularly told me I was missing the best time of the day, but that wasn't for me. I watched them as they went to work, um, they come home, they'd cook the food, and then back to bed early, ready for the next day. And so the cycle continued. Now I don't know whether I was some reflective, analytical being from a young age, or whether growing up as an only child I was just plain bored. But I really remember strongly at that young age thinking that there had to be more to life. I, I had no idea what it was. I had a very happy childhood and I knew I was loved a lot. Um, my parents were hospitable and caring, always helping those in need. But they weren't Christians. Um, and yet for some reason, maybe because we lived just down the hill, um, they always sent me here to come to Sunday school. When I was 12, I went away to a Christian camp. And there, for the first time, I really understood that, yes, there actually was more to life. I learned that there was a God who loved me. And this God wanted a personal relationship with me. For sure, I didn't understand much about Christianity, but I did ask Jesus to come into my life. But I'd understood enough to know that I really wanted my parents to know Jesus. I was desperate for them to become Christians. And so at just 12 years of age, I started praying and praying for them, asking the Lord to somehow reveal himself to them. Not long after, I witnessed what to me was a massive answer to my prayers. And I had the joy of seeing my mom and dad together giving their lives to Jesus. <laughs> Next, in my trip down memory lane, I thought of our wedding day and then the birth of our first baby, Samuel. My memories seem to focus on life's extremities, either the happiest or the saddest of times, so <laughs> forgive me for that. <laughs> I remember as if it were yesterday, proudly pushing the pram, taking my new baby to the six-week checkup. I watched as they weighed and measured him. Lots of people are nodding. Many of you remember this chapter in our story. Many, uh, they weighed and measured him, and then they did the sight test. 
And I noticed that they kept repeating and repeating the sight test. Innocently, I asked if everything was okay. I'll never forget the response I had. Um, they told me outright, that we think he's blind. Um, before I knew it, Nigel was phoned, got him out of work, and that afternoon we were in the hospital with the consultant, where it was confirmed that he was completely blind. Um, this was a massive shock, and we were distraught. All we could do was pray. The church was mobilized to pray for us, and I contacted every Christian I knew and asked them to pray for this baby. After a very long five weeks, five weeks may not sound like a long time, but to me this felt like forever. Um, one day, Samuel was in his 11th week by then. He was lying on the floor on his playmat, and we had brass handles on the door, and the sun was shining in. And as the sun hit the handles on the door, I was sure that he turned his head and looked at it. And there it was, another answer to prayer, another miracle. He could see. We saw the consultant again. He had no explanation. And delayed visual response was written on his notes. <laughs> Fast forward three years. Um, by then, our second son, Harry, has been born. And the boys were three and one. And it's Nigel's 29th birthday. Um, when he's told he has lymphatic cancer. Not the ideal birthday present. <laughs> and the next year again was tough. Um, as Nigel went through a year of chemotherapy. But here we are now, nearly 25 years later, and still cancer free. <laughs> You know, it did me so good to look back and just to remember all God had brought us through. The second thing that helped me, and I made a conscious effort to try and do this with, with the help of one and two who were, who were able to get by my side and, and read scripture to me and support me in that time. I looked at Excuse me a second. I knew that with the shock of the diagnosis, no amount of positive thinking, talking, or self-help tools would get me out of the chaos that I felt. Our friends were amazing. Many of you were here this morning who have been so kind to us, who still are so kind to us. We really appreciated the messages that you sent, the food and the cakes. Never a shortage of cakes if something is wrong. <laughs> um, the Bible verses that you shared and the way you prayed for us. You prayed with and for us. 
even when I couldn't face seeing people. And I just want to personally thank you for that. Even when I couldn't face seeing people, you still supported us. I knew at that point that what I needed was God himself. The diagnosis was just too big for me, and all I could do was sit. I'd love to say that I prayed big, impressive prayers, but I didn't. I could hardly verbalize how I was feeling, so I simply sat. One thing I did do was turn to the Psalms, and a friend of ours had made us a beautiful card, and on the front was Psalm 46. It became very special to us. Nigel would read it to me every night before we went to sleep. Here are two verses from that psalm. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And then verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. And the Passion Translation adds this, surrender your anxiety. The more I read these verses, I just knew they were becoming a reality deep within me, somehow like never before. Uh, one of the most challenging things um, for me was the feeling that I'd lost my identity. I'd had to give up the job that I loved. And then our favorite hobby had to go, um, walking. We loved to walk on the coast and up the mountains and walk the dog. Um, somebody has said this, that work and exercise seem trivial until your body can't do them anymore. And that was so true for me. Not only was my job and my main hobby gone, but on top of that, I was worried that I'd never be able to serve the Lord again. I didn't know who I was anymore. It just felt that everything had happened so quickly. But as I sat reading and rereading that psalm, God really spoke to me through it. Um, and he used it to remind me of who he is that he's my refuge, he's my strength. And in the quietness often of my own bedroom, I knew I was being drawn to just focus on him, to look at him, to understand his character and to know who he actually is. And alongside that, I felt I was learning another lesson, the importance of being and not doing. You know, we can easily allow the things that we do to shape our identity, can't we? I was Lois the teacher, or Lois the worker, perhaps even Lois the church leader. And these things are good in themselves, aren't they? They're usually the means that we help other people. But it taught me afresh that my identity is not in anything I do, um, but who I am and who he is and who I am in him and how he sees me, my relationship with him. I'm his loved daughter and that's what defines me. 
Another psalm I love to read was Psalm 91. We've heard a lot about this psalm during COVID, haven't we? And it's been special to us over the years, especially at the time that my mum died. Um, Here's some verses from Psalm 91 that I just, I really enjoyed reading over and over again. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 4 in the Passion Translation says this, His massive arms are wrapped around you, protecting you. Run under his covering of majesty and hide. Verse 5, do not fear the pestilence in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys. As I read and reread these verses, I felt they were speaking to me so clearly. And gradually, as I understood afresh, the nature of my God. I also find myself just resting in him. And I knew he was with me. My anxiety and fear started to lift. And I was filled with a sense of supernatural peace, a peace that I couldn't describe. It had to be the Lord. But this chapter in my story has caused me to think about what faith actually is. And, you know, just accepting the things that I can explain or the things that I feel comfortable with, that's not faith. The Bible says that God's ways are so much higher than ours. His plans and his purposes are far beyond my ability to understand. He's God and I'm not. And he knows what I don't. And all I need to do is trust. You know, I remembered back when we were working with the children, um, Kids Zone and Sunday School, and one of the things we used to do to try and get them to understand trust was we used to get them to stand like this with their legs rigid, shut their eyes and look this way, and get them to fall back to see if they could trust that one of the leaders would catch them. We usually did, didn't we? (laughs) And I gradually started letting go of trying to make sense of my circumstances. And the more I was able to let go, the more I felt God was there as if he was literally catching me. The hardest area for me that uh, tears me apart, as it is with us all, with our children, isn't it? Undoubtedly the boys, um, and the thought of perhaps not being there for them in the future. Right from the start, this was the thing that was breaking me. Um, It was such an awful feeling that I, I was failing them. In the first few months after the diagnosis, I just couldn't get this out of my mind. Um, It was all I could think about, and it made me feel so low. Um, One day, a friend came to the house. I hadn't spoken to her about this, and she didn't know that it was the thing I was really struggling with. And she 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 said she felt she had a word from God for me. 
And she said this, I believe the Lord wants you to know that you haven't let your boys down. <laughs> In a different conversation, someone really close to me brought me this challenge. She said, can you trust your boys to God? Wow, <laughs> it was a big challenge. But you know, these two conversations were hugely helpful to me. God knew exactly what I needed. And in his kindness and love, he reminded, that, he reminded me that he loves the boys more than I do. And he holds them closer than I ever could. It's still an ongoing struggle. But I try to make it a daily choice to trust the boys to God. But from that time, as I could feel myself falling back on God, I just knew that God had us. I knew that he was right in the middle of this with us. And though the diagnosis felt too big for me, God was bigger than the diagnosis. And his hands are big enough to carry what I couldn't. There were two verses in Isaiah that were a great help to me that I'd like just to share with you, especially in relation to the fear and the lack of peace that I had. Isaiah, it says this, do not be afraid for I am with you. Do not fear for I am your God. I will strengthen you and uphold you. Even if the mountains are shaken and the hills removed, Yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor the covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. As I read, I was often in my bedroom, I knew that God was speaking to me. I've often been asked in this chapter of my life, do I blame God? Um, and although my immediate answer is no, it's something that I've had to think through in order to try and answer people, I suppose. But you know, God never promised us a trouble-free life. Um, never did he say, come and be a Christian and you'll have a bed of roses. In fact, he said quite the opposite. He said, in this life, you will have troubles. And then I thought, but how could I blame God when he feels my pain more than anybody else? I think it's really hard for any of us to fully empathize with something that we haven't been through ourselves. But you know, God sent Jesus to suffer for us and he's been through the biggest pain, the, the greatest agony and heartbreak. He's been through everything I'm going through and far worse. And no one can fully enter my brokenness and pain in the way that he can. But the most obvious reason to me as I thought about this question was, how could I blame God when I know who he is? It would be like asking, do my children blame me when they get ill? Of course they don't. <laughs> Why? But because they know I love them. And they know how much I love them. 
And so it is with God. His character is intrinsically good. And he loves us. And the Bible tells me that somehow he works all things together for my good. So I looked back. I looked up. And then I found myself able to look beyond. I felt I was so caught up in the diagnosis and the, and the chaos of it that I'd lost sight of the big picture. And I needed to zoom out and try and see as God sees. As I did this, I saw how God had been working in the details that I hadn't even noticed and how he'd been blessing us through that time of chaos. First of all, in ways I haven't got time to go into this morning, I believe God prepared each one of us in our family for this diagnosis. And then there was lockdown. All through lockdown, I had the boys and Beatrix move back in with us and leave London as they could work from home. Never in my wildest dreams could I imagine us all living together for so many months. That was a blessing. He's given me another female, and I'm so grateful. For, from the first time I saw Beatrix after the diagnosis, she explained to me how she was so pleased that Samuel had proposed before I had the diagnosis. So even though I felt I was ruining their engagement, she felt that she was part of the family to journey with us at that time. I was so grateful for that. And then there was this. We got to celebrate the wedding together. In looking beyond, um, I thought a lot about death too. Um, you're forced to face your own mortality, I guess, with a diagnosis like this. Um, it's so worth reminding ourselves about what the Bible says about the death of a believer you know, it's Jesus, not MND, that will have the final word over my life. My days are in his hands. I might not be able to walk so well or climb a mountain anymore. But nothing can ever stop me from fulfilling the greatest commandment, which is to love God with all my heart, all my soul and all my mind. I'm not afraid uh, to die. His perfect love has cast out fear. And when death comes, it really is not the end. You know, I know where I'll spend eternity. Death doesn't have the final word. The cross has the final word. <laughs> Death is conquered. Death is but the gateway to an unimaginable inheritance. As I love to sing, I know the plans he has for me don't finish at my grave. 
like to invite the band back up if I could. In closing, I'd like to thank you all for your praise, your practical help, and the many different ways that you support us. We are so grateful to be part of this church family. Nearly every Sunday as I come through the doors, somebody says to me, I pray for you every day. Be assured, God is answering those prayers. In our last appointment with the neurologist, he said from their point of view that there's very slow progression in my symptoms. And we are already just over 18 months in. But also know this, um, I really would love that you continue to pray and believe in faith for my healing. I love it that there are people who pray for me and with me, believing that God can heal. But also know this, that the way he's carrying us as a family through this is nothing short of a miracle. Thank you.